Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show offering unique insights and in-depth analysis featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Metz. Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs with a brisk 30 minutes on the latest in South African and global news. We're live and then as a podcast. We'll bring you insightful interviews with key business and political figures, prominent newsmakers and leading experts, all in a concise, informative update. It's Monday, the 19th of February, coming up, the impact of poor municipal governance on commercial property prices, the threat of deep fake content in an election year, it's budget week, where does the minister have wiggle room, the impact of impeaching a judge and why the Democratic Alliance is warning about post-manifesto complacency. Suspended Western Cape Judge President John Lope wants the High Court to interdict the National Assembly from voting on his impeachment. That hearing is scheduled for later this week. Joining me now at the top of the program is Mbeki Zili Benjamin from the organization Judges Matter. And first up, isn't it time this issue was resolved? Yes, it is long past time that this issue has uh, needs to have been resolved. In fact, it has been going on for the last uh, 15 years now, going on to the 16th. And each time um, it has been beset by delays, some of which um, have been because of the Judicial Service Commission itself. But for the last few years, they have largely been because of Judge Lope himself. This will be the fourth litigation that he brings against the JSC process. Previously, he has sought to set the whole process aside. And when that failed, he challenged the president's decision to suspend him. And he later also now decided to take it to the Supreme Court of Appeal. And when that failed, he's now going to the Constitutional Mm. Court. So it has been beset by delays all throughout. And yes, it has. It is long past time that it, it has to be resolved. So what do you think of the broader implications of this request to interdict the National Assembly? Well, first of all, there are a, a couple of legal hurdles that he will need to clear for the challenge to succeed. First of all, to get an interdict against the constitutional functions of one arm of government by another is a monumental task. And the standard is much higher than getting a normal interdict because what Judge Lope is asking for the courts to do is to stop parliament from carrying out its constitutional function. And that has the potential of breaching the separation of powers principle. And what the courts call the separation of powers harm is a really strong, strict and strong 
strong test for him to clear. So that is the first one. Mm. The second one, he has to show that this is urgent. The difficulty with that is that he already knew by December that Parliament will go ahead with the impeachment. Yes, he might not know have known the exact date, but he was very well aware that it was coming, and which is why he first went to the Constitutional Court where he's filed papers. And even there, he never sought an interdict or argued for urgency at the Constitutional Court. So the, the question is, why is it urgent now? So those are the two big legal hurdles that he will need to clear before it gets to the merits of the decision. And even when it gets to the merits, there is some argument that he can make to say that the decision by parliament to remove him from office is irreversible and it will have lifetime consequences for him because he will lose the title and status that comes with being a judge and also the benefits which include uh, a lifetime salary for the for the rest of mm-hmm. his life. And so those kinds of consequences will be quite significant for him and, and that might be the strongest point that might might possibly lead the court to get an inter- to grant an interdict mm. in his favour, but it's it's no it's not guaranteed at all. Floppier is arguing that Parliament should, and I quote, re-examine the JSC decision on its merits. What do you think he's asking for? Well, basically what he's asking for is for Parliament to reopen the inquiry into his misconduct. And so in other words, go right a- back to square one. Yes, essentially go back to square one, um, re-examine the whole process from scratch and and come to its own conclusion on, on his misconduct and whether he's guilty or not of misconduct. Unfortunately, that is not possible in terms of the constitution and the law. The constitution makes it very clear that when it comes to the impeachment of judges, the parliament has a a more limited role than if you compare it to the impeachment of the president or the head of a chapter nine institution like the public protector. In both the president and the public protector, parliament has the duty to do an inquiry which will involve uh, hearing witnesses and cross-examining those witnesses. But when it comes to uh, the impeachment of judges, it is the Judicial Service Commission that does that job. It has to set up a tribunal that must hear evidence, including witnesses, and those witnesses will be cross-examined. Once that process is done, once the JSC makes a decision on the guilt of a judge and whether or not they've committed gross misconduct, then it moves over to the National Assembly. So the National Assembly takes a more political decision on whether or not, now that this person has been found guilty of gross misconduct, they should still remain in office. And that is what the what Parliament is scheduled to do immediately after the budget speech this week. And, and that is what Lope is trying to sort of fudge to let, to get Parliament to do what the uh, JSC has already done, and that is not possible in terms of Section 177 of the Constitution. Just a final one, and very quickly, this entire controversy surely is impacting negatively on public trust in the judicial system and the perception, I imagine, of judicial integrity in the country. Yes, unfortunately, this saga has been quite a low point in the history and reputation of the judiciary since 1994. One does expect more from judges. You expect them to subject themselves to the rules that are set up, that everyone else who's the subject of a judge's order subjects themselves to. So it is quite ironic that it's his judges themselves who are frustrating the process. And it does... um, uh, 
do a, a, is a blot on the on the mm. reputation of the judiciary. Thank you very much for joining us. That's uh, Mbekizili Benjamin from the organisation Judges Matter. MoneyWeb at midday for all your up-to-date stories. All right, let's switch now from the judiciary to party politics and against the backdrop of the union buildings, the Democratic Alliance launching its manifesto this weekend and the party leader, John Steenhuisen, positioning it as an anchor of the multi-party charter. Just to remind you, the multi-party charter is a pre-election pact by uh, like-minded opposition parties. I'm going to talk now to Matthew Cuthbert, who is DA Head of Policy. Thank you very much for joining us today. Now, the weekend optics that the party tried to portray was a government in waiting in front of the union buildings, but that's certainly not what the polls are suggesting right now. So, good afternoon, Jeremy. Thank you very much for having me on your show. I think that the polls are indicating significant growth for the DA, and particularly the multi-party charter as a collective. And ultimately, the final tally will be rung after the ballot boxes are counted. And I think that we've built up a significant amount of momentum since we initiated the multi-party charter. I think we've done so individually as the DA. And I think that we are the best-placed party to be at the centre of any kind of majority coalition that takes government to displace the ANC. It's important, though, that the party, if successful, is going to have to navigate coalition governance to ensure stability and policy continuity, I guess. We don't have a very good record of that in this country, do we? So I think we often hone in on places like Johannesburg and Ikruleni, where there have been some significant problems amongst coalition partners. Two very big and important centres. 100%, 100%, and that's not to devalue that. However, there are a number of other cities and towns where we govern in coalition with many other political parties, and we don't seem to have the same kind of focus on those municipalities where things are going right. However, in saying that, I believe that our policy platform, which we launched this past weekend, is perfectly coherent with that of our multi-party charter colleagues. We meet on a weekly basis to discuss our policy positions and to make sure that we are coherent, that we all have a commitment to the same kind of uh, you know, economic ideas, safety ideas, energy ideas. And you'll see that our leader has been alongside other party leaders in releasing our policy briefs. So I think we have a much better situation at hand before this election as opposed to the previous election because we have a common platform that we share and one in which we've all had an opportunity to provide input and I think that provides a solid foundation for us to work together as a majority coalition government after the election. A manifesto of course is all about policy and uh, one of your proposals is to reform labour laws to foster job creation. What specific changes then would the DA envisage making to the Labour Relations Act? So we feel that over the last 30 years, the ANC government has failed to meaningfully generate employment to unlock opportunity and allow people to actually live a life of upward social mobility. And this is particularly stark amongst the youth who face an almost 70% unemployment rate. And one of our solutions here is to introduce a youth employment opportunity certificate, which allows the long-term unemployed youth to actually apply to the Department of Labor to forego certain conditions, such as wage negotiations, in order to be able to get work, build up experience, and hopefully be promoted and earn a more meaningful livelihood than they would being reliant on the state. And I think it's a simple juxtaposition as follows. 
you can either sit on the side of the road or you can sit at home and you can be a passive recipient of the state or you can have a job opportunity and you are able to then build up some sort of capital in your own family, allow yourself to actually access new opportunity and make things far better for yourself than sitting and waiting 40 years for the amount you receive in the SRD grant to amount to one year's salary as a, as a earner that's slightly below the minimum wage. Uh, Matthew Cuthbert, if I read the manifesto correctly, and uh, you'll tell me if I'm wrong, you would jettison the Employment Equity Act and the Preferential Procurement Act. The question is, how would the party ensure diversity and equity in the workplace and in procurement processes without those specific measures? Sure. So we have an alternative model, which is based on our economic justice policy, which looks at using the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, some of those being clean energy, decent work, economic growth, healthcare services and education as key indicators of redress as opposed to crude racial classifications. And companies' contributions towards these sustainable development goals would then allow them to have access to preferential procurement. It's also been indicated by a number of international experts that if we were to do away with existing preferential procurement and the kind of cost inefficiencies that are associated with it, we could save up to 80 billion rand, which help us uh, go a long way in plugging the 6% fiscal deficit that we currently have. So we think there's multiple policy objectives that we can achieve if we introduce this alternative. And we believe that if everyone has got an enabling environment, access to the right kind of services, education, that people will be able to succeed regardless of the color of their skin. And at the same time, we'd be able to address the historical injustices of the past. Just a quick one before I let you go. Has the Democratic Alliance heard from the ANC yet about the five-day CADA deployment uh, records that you're chasing? We haven't heard anything as of yet. Uh, We've seen in the news that they say the records don't exist. I wonder if there wasn't, in fact, a bonfire that took place outside the Thule House last week. But I I imagine that's a matter of speculation, and we'll wait to see if they comply with the deadline as set out by the Constitutional Court. All right, Matthew Cuthbert, Head of Policy at the DA. Thank you very much indeed. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. It's budget week and conventional wisdom is suggesting that the finance minister really has little room to move. Martin Ackerman is chief economist at Citadel and has some thoughts on what we might hear later this week. And firstly, Martin, welcome. Thanks for joining us. How might the minister apply his mind to reining in expenditure? Yes, good afternoon. It is definitely going to be a difficult budget for the minister. Um, You know, we're starting with a budget that's on a huge train given just where the economy is and the expenses that they need to commit to and also the, the lack of revenue. But not only that, we need to keep in mind this is an election year and with the ANC being under severe pressure, you know, yeah, they, they would like to also keep that in mind in terms of uh, the announcement. So your question about how they're going to um, cut back on expenses, that is probably the most difficult part of the budget. You know, you can fix the revenue side um, by doing a couple of things. But on the expense side, you know, where we are at the moment, one of the biggest expenses is the wage bill. In an election year, how do you cut back on that, um, especially if you don't want to start um, uh, firing a lot of the staff in, in the public sector? Um, so that's not an easy thing to do. And then the other thing is, you know, we, we're still sitting with a social ground from COVID. And um, there, at least from a, a you know, social responsibility point of view, it's so important that the government keep on paying those. Uh, given the weak economic growth and the high unemployment, you know the one thing that the country can't afford is to actually for those people to to not get that income or to keep that income linked to inflation. 
So cutting back on expenses, that's probably the hardest thing to do, especially, like I said, in election year where you want to keep your promises that you've made mm. to a lot of the people that vote for you. And we know that there is a current revenue shortfall. So where does he need to look strategically from a tax perspective, again, with the caveat that we are in an election year? Yeah, that's the other difficult part. Um, you know, will you see significant tax increases in an election year? Well, I think the government is in a tight corner, so there might be some of those. Uh, definitely from a personal income point of view, I don't think they will increase tax, but definitely increase the income tax brackets, you know, the bracket creep they talk about. So in uh, not physically increasing the, the percentage that you pay, but definitely make sure that those um, uh brackets remain in line with inflation so that will definitely happen and then you know there's a lot of talk about potentially increasing VAT. now let's unpack that for a minute you know the benefit of increasing VAT is that there's an immediate impact from the next day uh, government or treasury pretty much know what they're going to get it's very different from increasing for example uh, capital gains tax because capital gains tax you know investors might decide uh, to think differently about triggering that tax. So you, it's not a guarantee in terms of how much you're going to get. And if you compare South Africa to the rest of Africa, our VAT rate is still below average. So government, even in election year, can make the point to say, well, you know, we're in a tight corner. Um, we don't want to cut back on expenses. Uh, the economy is not really growing yet as much as we would like it to grow. Um, so to generate additional revenue, we are considering that. But it and would be political that, suicide, particularly among uh, the ANC's core constituency, which, uh, which is often a, a poorer demographic. You're 100% right. But there again, that at least provides uh, the opportunity to say, well, we can add more zero VAT items to that mix. So looking after the poorest of poor or the low-income consumers. And even if they want to go that far, they can say, well, because you know, buying certain cars above a certain limit, uh, they double the VAT. So they can use VAT to actually make sure that the different income level, levels get taxed differently in terms of where they spend their money. Martin, so it we've, all depends on how they package that. Right. Martin, we've, we've heard for some time government talking about the rationalization of state-owned enterprises. Again, a very unpopular topic. Um, do you think that the minister might reflect on that? Uh, you, you talk about the uh, national uh, privatization? Not privatization, just rationalizing them, bringing them, uh, stripping them down, making them leaner. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so that is one of the big grains on the fiscus. Um, we know that it's been coming for years. You know, we talk about the big ones like ESCOM and Transnet, but it's basically all 700 of them. Um, most of them are, are looking for funding um, and not really adding productive capacity to the economy. Um, so I think the fact that the, the big ones failed over the last couple of years and without providing bailout after bailout, we haven't seen results. You know, it really got to a point, and I think the last two budgets were quite clear that, you know, that there's no open door anymore. Um, you need to run like a proper business or, you know, find an alternative plan. And also now with the private sector coming in, for example, in terms of alternative energy, we can clearly already see that some of the improvements uh, in terms of electricity supply can be done over and above the SOE. So the SOEs, where they don't perform, um, I think you are at a dead end in terms of Treasury just providing them additional lifelines. And another issue that people will be wanting more clarity on is how to fund the NHI. 
Yeah, you know, the, the, the NHI at this point, I also think, is a, a political promise in an election year. Um, you know, the, the, the idea behind that, there's nothing wrong with that. We see that in many other countries. But it is about the, the actual rollout and the funding of that. And if you think about your own personal budget, you know, if you're in a tight corner and you want to do something that you haven't done before, you need to get money somewhere to do that. And I think right now the uh, biggest headwind probably for that is the fact that they're not going to be able to find uh, sufficient funding to actually make Mm. that work. Well, all will be revealed later in the week. Martin Ackerman, thank you very much indeed. Chief Economist at Citadel. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. Badly run municipalities do more than just annoy residents and lead to rubbish pileups. There can also be a slippery slope to wide-scale economic decline. And that, says John Jack, Chief Executive Officer of Galetti Corporate Real Estate, has an impact on commercial property sales. So, John, how do poorly run municipalities then directly impact the value of commercial properties? What are your concerns? It really links to demand. That's the main thing. You know, in the end of the day, when tenants are looking to vote with their feet, as it were, they are going to demand municipalities that are better run. It's just a better environment. That's where you want to be. It's similar to a, a well-run building or a well-man, well-maintained building. Similar thing. And effectively, that's how it links to municipalities. What specifically would potential investors or tenants be worried about then? So I think really it's the environment that you're in. So it comes down to security and also just your general environment. You want to be in a nice environment. It's similar for buildings at the moment. And if you look at the office sector, what's happened over the last couple of years is that landlords have had to re-envision their offices as hospitality units. You know, what else can we do? What other services can we uh, entice tenants to the building with? And it's similar with municipalities. If you have a poorly run municipality, people don't want to be there. It's not safe to go outside, et cetera, et cetera. And so people actually end up relocating uh, to the other municipality. And, and by doing so, means that they're going to have to find themselves in the offices in the same place. So, Jeremy, there's another thing. And this is a critical thing, is that landlords look to invest or deploy capital where they are fairly secure and, and they know that that capital is going to be correctly spent, that the money that they contribute, maybe it's in a CRD or a city improvement mm-hmm. district, the money that they contribute is actually going to be spent correctly and is going to be deployed in and around their buildings to improve the general environment of their buildings. If they're not that sure that that's happening, then they're not going to obviously contribute that money. And that's a big thing. They hold back their capital. John, are there areas or municipalities of particular concern to you? So I would say, like, if you look at some of Durban's municipality, certainly that's a big concern and you've seen big infrastructure failures there and notwithstanding the fact that you've still seen development along the north coast but there's big infrastructure failure in the central durban area that's a significant problem if you look at johannesburg however i think that there's a bit of a balance wherein it's not really a fantastic municipality you can see a lot of degradation in the in the roads wires hanging in the roads rubbish security etc etc However, recently you've started to see the city of Johannesburg signing this deal with Vumacam, where they've got another 6,000 cameras coming online to add to security. You've seen a big drive in the CBD now to improve security. But is this electioneering? You know, is this election spend? Or is this actually going to follow through? Are we going to see some leadership? Mm -hmm. And I draw the parallel to Cape Town. I mean, Cape Town is obviously shining at the moment. But I draw the parallel to Cape Town where you see the mayor of Cape Town, Jordan Hill-Lewis, 
he stands up and he says, this is what I'm doing. This is what we are repairing and this is what we've done. And they actually stick to their words and they publicize it. You see a lot of it. That attracts capital. I mean, you've seen all the SIDS there contributing over 300 million. And this is just in top up. You know, this is in top up additional security, additional maintenance, additional refuse collection, et cetera, et cetera. It's a significant amount of money. Whereas in Johannesburg, you don't really see those forming. And this is where it comes down to the confidence. Are you able to quantify the negative impact on commercial property value as a result of the problems that you've outlined? So I would say, like, if you go and look at the at the Cape Town CBD, they've had an 8% increase on their A-grade buildings. Okay, that's rental increase. So the market's actually trending upward. And the only reason it trends upward is lack of supply, increase in demand, simple market dynamics. Whereas if you look at Johannesburg, we've not seen any increases. In fact, you're still seeing decreases. I think we, we're going to start seeing a bit of a floor at the moment on rentals, but we're just not seeing any increase in rentals. So, you know, landlords are sitting in a situation where basically their rentals are not increasing, but certainly their costs are increasing. So their costs of maintenance, also their rates are increasing. That's another, that's another thing. When you get a poorly run municipality, they're ineffective. So, you know, your rates have to continue going up to deliver the same or less service. So what landlords are seeing is less and less net rental. And so that is actually directly quantifiable. Whereas in Cape Town, you're seeing increases in net rental driven by the top line growth because there's, there is no growth in, uh, even though you know contractually, tenants will sign a new three or five year lease, they'll sign a six or 7% escalation, but, and then their lease agreement is gonna go up uh, or index mm-hmm. upward. But the, when, when that lease agreement ends, it just comes back down to where the market is, sits currently. So I'd say that is quantifiable, certainly. You talk about the importance of uh, private investment partnership with municipalities, mm. but you also talk about uh, ego battles that deter the progress. Mm. Uh, mm. What is that? I would think that in, you know, certainly the Cape Town municipality has a very much how can we help you attitude. How can we help you? How can we, we, we are desperate to secure business in this municipality. We're desperate to bring business to the city, to Cape Town. And so they have this very pro-business type of attitude. How can we help? In Johannesburg, it's a different scenario because people are very, very worried about losing their roles or getting accused of corruption or any of these things. So Johannesburg has become more bureaucratic. And so it's not about how can we help you? It's how many boxes can we tick? How many how long can it take to do this progress process? I don't want to get accused of anything. And that stems ultimately from leadership. And we've seen a series of leadership succession changes in the Johannesburg municipality and certainly Chwani at the same time. And so what happens there is no one's willing to stick their neck out because they don't know what the directive mm-hmm. is. Should we make decisions? Should we support business? Should we rail against it? Simple things, Jeremy. You'll see, for example, a couple of groups forming now uh, to, to try and improve the, the rivers, okay, and the, and the sprites and the public areas like that. And so they want to come up with ideas. How can we generate income for the city? How can we clean this area up? How can we get the public to contribute? And there are about a thousand roadblocks to get laid right. down, as opposed to Yes, let's actually do this. Let's move ahead and uh, generate some more income. They're not saying, oh, this could go wrong, that could go wrong. And so I think it stems from leadership. All right. John Jack, I'm going to leave it there. Thank you very much indeed. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories.
The integration of artificial intelligence and big data has become increasingly evident in playing an important role in shaping political communication, campaigning and election management. All of this has been raised ahead of our election at the International Political Campaigns Expo, which has just taken place in Cape Town. With me now is the host and convener, Glenn Mpani. And Glenn, firstly, how big a threat is AI to the South African election? Artificial intelligence is a big threat that we should be looking at uh, in the coming elections. Artificial intelligence work as a tool focuses on three issues that are important when one is campaigning. There are tools that you can use for targeting, that is the use of data, manipulation of data, identifying your audience where they are. The second one is a messaging. So the issue of how you package your messaging, how you relate to your audience, use of voice and image, it's a problem. The third one is on mobilization. You can use the tool for mobilizing and getting your numbers. So in reality, it is a threat when it comes to Mm. elections. In addition to that, uh, just, just another component, Jeremy, is that it is a threat because remember the role of money in politics. So because of the expenses and the costs that run with getting the tool and deploying it, you would find that political parties are not able to all afford that. So in essence, ruling parties that traditionally have resources are most likely going to thrive with the usage of the tool as compared to smaller political Mm. parties. So do you believe as a result of this warning that the multiple stakeholders involved in this would have a handle on the risk itself and perhaps more importantly, how to mitigate it? I think this is a short-term measure which is important and which we needed because in most instances we've had to rely on policy and legislation. It's impractical this year when we've got 60 elections across the world to fast-track policy and legislation. So as a short-term measure, that's a fantastic uh, move that they've done. But the next problem is how do you oversee these tech companies? Remember, they are in business. How do you oversee them? How do you ensure that they respect their accord? Even if we are to create an oversight body, one needs to be able to retool it, educate it, and develop sufficient skills for them to be able to provide oversight. So it's a good gesture, but in terms of implementation, it remains worrisome. So in the South African context then, what immediate strategies could you recommend for effective action against uh, deceptive information and deepfake? So for the South African context, we need the tech companies that work within this space to also do a commitment. We also need political parties to have some commitment, goodwill commitment that they will not use resources to be able to get AI tools that can promote disinformation. We also need the election management body, the IEC, to be able to get tools that can monitor the environment in terms of use of AI tools. The fact-checking organization, media, they also need to be trained immediately to deal with it because I think the challenge in South Africa, just like Kenya, there are usually places where these tools come in and they're exploited on and they're used So it's very, very important for that to take place as soon as possible. So whether it be the major digital platforms, and I'm thinking Meta, WhatsApp, Twitter X, the political parties, or even the IEC for that matter, is there any evidence at this stage of the commitment that you're calling for? 
at this early stage, I think what we have noticed, because remember, campaigning has not gone full swing. I think now people are waiting for the date of the election to be announced. Correct. But realistically speaking, one can be able to tell, as things stand right now, that there are nascent levels where people are looking at data, ways their constituents, how do they target them. But I think when you're going to full swing campaign, you're going to see a lot of spreading of deep fake stuff. I think using voice and imaging, and it's going to be very difficult for the voter to be able to discern which one is correct and which one is incorrect. And with the digital divide, you would uh, agree with me, uh, Jeremy, that there are other spaces where when something that is fake has been shared, it might take close to two, three days to undo it. So we really see a very, very important role for media, both radio and TV. And if there's a... In these tech companies, if there's a way in which they can quickly flag all these things that aren't true as they are going out, I think that is one of the ways in which we can be able to keep disinformation during this election. But we know that those platforms do not have a good track record when it comes to moderating that kind of content. Yes, so that's, that's also the problem because in essence, the time that they take, the people who do that. So self-regulation is going to be a key issue political parties calling each other, which I'm very, very skeptical about that as a tool. So so, so we are in an essence having to rely on the media and civil society as a way of dealing with the problem mm. of the use of AI in terms of affecting the integrity of the election. All right. Well, the warning has been sounded. Uh, Glenn and Pani, thank you very much indeed. And that interview also informs our online poll today. Deep fake political content. Are you worried? No threat at all or be sharper. Go to MoneyWeb on Twitter, also on our LinkedIn page. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon weekdays. We're then up as a podcast. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.